It's midday for a Monday on the Rural Radio Network, and welcome to a brand new week of information for you here in the mid part of your day every day starting at this time monday through friday we bring you all sorts of information from the world of agriculture and news and sports and business you name it we got it the one thing that we always have first off is jesse harding well it's not always me almost i mean this is the permanent uh, assignment now right Yes. To be the voice of Midday Preview. As long as I'm not on assignment somewhere, right. which will be next week. Where are you going next week? Now? North Platte and Kearney. Okay. I think it's next week. Okay. They start to run together. Well, you get to globetrot quite a bit, though. I do. Okay. Not recently, though. Yeah. That's been Miss Susan Littlefield. Yes, she has been kind of on the run lately. That's right, and we'll have a little more for her for the newsmaker. But starting out at the 1213, the Kansas Department of Agriculture uh, is releasing some information about the National Organic Certification Cost Share Program. I think they still have some availability spots open. We'll talk about that at the 1213 for Kansas producers. For the 1219, Bruce Gorder is well is with Phil Corzera. He's executive director of BioNebraska. They discuss the organization and the role it plays with Nebraska companies. For the newsmaker last week, Susan was in D.C. for Corn Congress. She's joined with Chris Novak. He's the CEO of National Corn Growers Association. They discuss trade, crop insurance, and the importance that Corn Congress plays for corn producers. And then for the 117, Bruce Gorder is joined with Dr. Mark Curly, they're talking about the world, the work of the National Animal Disease Center, and they had a meeting last week as well. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate it. We'll listen for all of that. And uh, now we bring in Brandon Bennett's on the sports mic today. And the reason Brandon is here is because Jason is not, because he is globetrotting, or at least he is continent trotting, because he right now is at the Nebraska and other Big Ten schools media football day currently going on in Chicago. He will have a report, and we'll hear from him. And the Kansas City Chiefs right now are just about to wrap up a media conference, debuting their new general manager, Brett Veach, it always is good to be an assistant for a head coach that becomes a head coach and is a is a legend because Brett Veach was an assistant under Andy Reid when Andy Reid was head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. He then became the co-director of player personnel for the Chiefs for the last four years and is now the brand-new general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs. More information on that coming up at 1225. All right, we'll look forward to that as well. A lot of Chiefs fans out there. Now let's move over to Bob Brogan, who has the business headlines. U.S. stock indexes are tiptoeing backward. Uh, also, um, a big deal, home buyers are facing surging prices and a, sh- uh, a shrinking number of properties for sale in June. And there's some dispute about that because in various cities, you know, there's, there's enough property on the market. But uh, depending on where you go, Denver, Chicago, mm-hmm. what have you, uh, there's a deficit of property, which sounds hard to believe. Other information uh, that we're watching, WebMD is being sold. So that's a health information website. It's being purchased by KKR in a deal valued at about $2.8 billion. So lots of things are going on as we sit here in the middle of uh, July. Actually, we're a little past the middle of July, but, uh, you know, we're moving through the summer and moving toward the dog days of summer, but uh, there's still a lot going on. Moving into the rest of this day's edition of Midday on the Rural Radio Network. 
Paul Perkins is in to take a look at our ag weather brought to you this time by Coolman Repair. Cool is not in the forecast really for a couple of days. No, not for a few days here. And especially when you look back in history today, a no, I guess you would say a notorious weather day in central Nebraska history. Oh. It's the anniversary date of the hottest day ever in central Nebraska. Oh, well, that's comforting. Yeah, when many locations in central Nebraska recorded their hottest temperature ever. In 1936, Minden, the hottest temperature ever recorded in Nebraska, it hit 118 in Minden on this day in 1936. And other locations also in central Nebraska hitting their hottest temperature ever uh, with uh, places that did record temperatures at that date. Grand Island hit 117, Hastings 116, Kearney hit 114. That's not the heat index, that's the actual that's air temperature. Wow. On this date back in 1936. The heat of the, the, at the height, I should say, of the dust bowl. Exactly. Yeah, 1936, a very hot day, a uh, hot year across um, all of the nation. So uh, today going to be a typical July day, not that typical like we just talked about, but sunshine and warmer temperatures on the way today as the warm front tracks to the east. Winds out of the south as high pressure moves off towards the east. Tomorrow going to be our hottest and most humid day of the next seven days with that subtropical ridge of high pressure overhead. Feels like rainings tomorrow afternoon and evening going to peak out in the low 100s. Thunderstorms will track southeast in the afternoon right near a cold front draped from South Dakota to northeast Colorado on into the panhandle there. The remnants of those storms will track into central locations tomorrow night on into early Wednesday. Just a few storms may be strong or severe if we see any, not expecting anything in the way of a big severe weather outbreaks, especially in our area when those thunderstorms will start to arrive in the overnight hours. Wednesday looks to be a transition day. That's before the first Canadian cold front since early July arrives on Thursday. Thunderstorms will remain possible with that front. High pressure to our northeast as we head towards late in the week, towards the weekend. That will keep our temperatures much cooler in the 80s in the late week and weekend. An easterly upslope flow off that area of high pressure will help to develop some thunderstorms in the west that then track towards the east. And in the long term, it is a change to the cooler. Below normal temperatures are now forecast for both Nebraska and Kansas this weekend through the first six days of August. The precipitation forecast, though, Kind of a mixed bag here. Mostly near normal precipitation in Nebraska and Kansas this weekend through the 6th of August. The higher odds of more rain are this weekend and early next week. Better chances of being dry are in the later periods in early August. Weather factors driving market trade include a continued large difference in Midwest crop conditions and additional dryness in the U.S. Plains and Canadian prairies. A pair of cold fronts will track across the country with scattered thunderstorms and cooler, less humid weather with each of those fronts. Most of the rain will be in the eastern half of the U.S., lesser amounts in the plains. Unfortunately, the core drought areas in the northern plains will remain dry. The outlook is mixed across the Midwest. Central and southern portions of the western Midwest will remain mostly dry. North and east Iowa and southern Minnesota will see some beneficial rain. Favorable crop conditions, though, will be found across the eastern Midwest. In the southern plains, there will be less crop stress with a more variable temperature pattern in northern sectors. But in southern areas of the southern plains, it will remain hot underneath a dome of high pressure. Heat and drought in the northern plains continue to weather the crops. Major losses to spring wheat already occurred and now expecting significant losses for pollinating corn. In the Canadian prairies, stressful dryness remains in southern Saskatchewan. That's been drier than normal since May and where the spring wheat losses will be significant. Drier conditions also extend into southern Alberta and very light rain is forecast for this week.
And again, your ag weather brought to you by Kuhlman Repair. I want to remind you that when you need weather anytime, you can find that. KRBN.com. Look at agriculture information on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Jesse Harding. The proposed rewrite of the Waters of the United States rule is on tap to be released in December, but it is not clear from the federal regulatory agency just exactly when that will be finalized. The rule to clarify the scope of the Water Clean Water Act and repeal the Obama-era WOTUS rule could come in December, according to a listing in the Unified Agenda release by the Trump administration on July 20th. The process to replace WOTUS is a two-step effort. The first step came last month with a proposed rule to repeal the rule the Obama administration put in place. The next step would be to rewrite that rule, and EPA has solicited inputs from states and local government officials in that effort. They say you are what you eat, and one organic grower said we've gone to the extreme and need to look at what we feed them. One attendee to the farmer's market held on the grounds of the USDA in Washington, D.C., had an interesting perspective on some research that he's done when it comes to the organic industry. William Schutte says you really are. It's very important, and the biggest thing is is telling them why you want to eat what we eat. We have Icelandic kelp in our bird feed, for example, and it's all about lived and hasn't lived. Uh, If it is lived... You can metabolize 90% of it, and that's you down to the bioorganism. If it hasn't, 10%. The Icelandic kelp has over 90 minerals in it. It's lived. So if I feed it to my bird, uh, say a laying hen or a broiler or a turkey, when you get it back, you're getting 90% of the minerals that they get back. And uh, so it's a highly mineralized thing. It works the same way for your tomato plant. So the two tomatoes look exactly the same. Uh, One will have minerals, one won't only because they put it in there and the, the thing can absorb it. And that's one of the main things they missed when they went certified organic was they're all worried about what's not in there. The bad stuff mainly is not in our stuff, but we are putting a lot of good stuff in it. And so it's all about what you feed them. You are what you eat. You feed the bird is what it eats. The cow is what it eats. So you get to eat what they ate. And uh, that's, that was the whole theory behind organic to begin with. And, uh, and it needs to kind of get back to that. An interesting perspective on organic from the farmer's market at the USDA in D.C. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. And the Kansas Department of Agriculture has funds available, available for the National Organic Certification Cost Share Program, allow, allowing farmers, ranchers, and businesses which produce, process, or package certified organic agricultural products to be reimbursed for eligible expenses. More on that can be found at RollRadio.com. And the Central Platte NRD will be saying goodbye to a longtime employee. Shaley Peters has more. Engineering hydrologist Dwayne Woodward will retire after 25 years of employment with the Central Platte Natural Resources District and 18 years with the Bureau of Reclamation. His research and analysis have been used to develop water management plans for the Central Platte NRD, the Platte Basin, and the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. Woodward has served on the Water Advisory Committee for the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program since it was initiated in 1997. Jerry Kenny, executive director of the PRRIP, recently said Duane is Mr. Water Resources of the Platte Basin. The knowledge, skills, and presence that Duane represents is irreplaceable and a huge asset to the community. 
A retirement open house will be held on Thursday, August 31st, 2017 from 3.30 to 5 at the Central Platte NRD office located in Grand Island and the public is invited to attend. You're listening to the Roll Radio Network. I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. The growth in biotechnology in many aspects of society has been tremendous, and that includes biotech growth in agriculture. BioNebraska was formed to work with biotech companies in Nebraska, and this is Phil Cazera. He's the executive director of BioNebraska. So BioNebraska is the trade association for the life sciences industry in Nebraska. And overall, our goal is to strengthen the ecosystem for companies and, uh, that are working in the life science industry and bring about collaboration with the university. Talk about some of those companies and some of the partners in the life science in- industry in Nebraska. So in Nebraska, we have uh, a notably diverse uh, life science industry. So we range everywhere from human health to medical device to renewable fuels uh, and everything in between. And we also have large multinationals and small emerging companies. Some of the larger companies that are household names are companies like Merck, Zoetis, Novozymes, Becton Dickinson, and then some of the uh, regional companies that are certainly having a large impact on their specific area of interest are companies like GeneSeq, Lycor, Benchmark Biolabs. What makes Nebraska such a, a lightning rod for companies, life science companies, to come in? And why is the atmosphere so good? You know, I think a certain amount of that gets back to our agricultural roots. And the fact that uh, we had to be entrepreneurial, we had to be innovative, and then you tie that in with some of the university assets that we have, specifically looking at the Med Center and the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the tremendous research that comes out of there, and you partner that with the industry footprint that we have, and that combination seems to be very good for growth. We're at the conference in Ames, Animal Health of the Heartland Conference, the, the second one, Omaha last year, Ames this year. Uh, talk about the, the collaboration with Iowa Bio on this conference. Yeah, you know, our partners uh, in Iowa are just uh, tremendous people to collaborate with. And, you know, last year was our first Animal Health Symposium. It was very successful. And we were excited to get together again this year to work on uh, our event. And uh, Joe and Melissa and the team at Iowa Bio uh, have just been tremendous partners in making this event a success this year. Animal health translates into food safety, big issues for everybody. Uh, You're really presenting a lot of different issues here at the conference, but it really all translates to animal health. That's correct. I mean, as you uh, noted, the industry is complex, it's diverse, and it requires a lot of people to come together to develop innovative solutions to current challenges and and anticipated challenges. And that's really one of the goals of the Animal Health Symposium, is to bring people together to have a discussion with the goal of more collaboration down the road. 
That's Phil Cozera, Executive Director of BioNebraska. And it certainly seems that uh, with the success of the Animal Health in the Heartland Symposium, in the first two years, the continuation of the annual event seems likely. I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network. Time to check sports, and here's Brandon Betts. Good afternoon, Dirk. Well, they're talking Big Ten football today in Chicago. Jason Jorgensen has more. It's all about Big Ten football the next two days here in Chicago. The conference's media days get underway today. Now seven schools are set to take questions from the media this afternoon, while the seven other teams will be here tomorrow. Today, the division favorites Ohio State in the east and Wisconsin in the west will be in attendance, and Iowa coach Kirk Ferentz and the Hawkeye delegation will also be here. Now Nebraska is scheduled to take part in the activities tomorrow. Reporting for the Big Ten media days in Chicago, I'm Jason Jorgensen. The Kansas City Chiefs have just wrapped up a media conference at Arrowhead Stadium, debuting Brett Veach as their new general manager. Prior to being the Chiefs GM, Veach was with the Philadelphia Eagles as an assistant to now Chiefs head coach Andy Reid, and then worked his way up the personnel side, including being the Chiefs co-director for player personnel for the last four years. Turning to baseball, all-star pitchers Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers and Steven Strasburg of the Nationals are recovering after getting injured yesterday, as is Cardinals on-base machine Matt Carpenter. Kershaw is headed to the disabled list with another back injury, this time he's experiencing tightness in the lower right side. Strasburg, meanwhile, says he hasn't felt right since the All-Star game because of quote-unquote acheness in his forearm. He left after two innings yesterday and hopes that he'll nip it in the bud now. And then there's Carpenter, who is dealing with right quad tightness and is considered day-to-day. The Nebraska Coaches Association All-Star Basketball Games are set for tonight at Lincoln North Star High School. The girls' game starts at 6, and the boys' tip at 8 p.m. And it's another trip to the Midwest Regional Tournament for the Kearney Little League team. Over the weekend, Kearney claimed the Nebraska State Championship by beating Hastings. Kearney will now play in Indianapolis beginning on August 6th as they begin regional pool play against Iowa. And finally, Michael Phelps has finally met his match in the water. A great white shark, even though that shark is simulated. The multi-time Olympic champion swimmer was bested yesterday evening in the Discovery Channel's Shark Week special, Phelps vs. Shark, Great Gold vs. Great White. But Phelps didn't swim with a real shark. He competed in the ocean against a computer-simulated fish based on data on the swimming speed of actual sharks. Phelps was outfitted with a wetsuit and a monofin to mimic a shark's powerful tail. He finished the 100-meter race in 38 seconds, just two seconds slower than the simu shark. Phelps tweeted yesterday that he liked a rematch, but in warmer waters. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More of Midday is just ahead. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. There's a slight chance of thunderstorms this afternoon for parts of western Nebraska. Otherwise hot today, highs around 105 in the west to lower 90s in the east. I'm Dave Schroeder. A 39-year-old man suspected of robbing six banks in several states since 2012 appeared in Dawson County District Court in Lexington this morning. Richard Gathercole was apprehended in June of this year at a Lexington truck stop in a pickup reported stolen from Kansas. He's charged in Dawson County with two counts of possession of a stolen firearm and possession of stolen property. 
Gather Cole pled not guilty to those charges, and District Court Judge Jim Doyle set a jury trial for September 12th. A pretrial hearing was also set for August 25th. Each of the Dawson County charges Gather Cole faces carries a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison, but that may be the least of his worries. Authorities believe Gather Cole is the man they call the AK-47 bandit, who used an AK-47 rifle in at least six bank robberies since 2012. They occurred in Nebraska City, Nebraska, in uh, three locations in California, along with another one in Washington State and Idaho. A search of Gather Cole's Montana home by FBI agents last month turned up bomb-making materials, seven guns, and ammunition. Agents also took sheriff's badges and patches, a sheriff's vest and an ammunition vest, a military-style helmet, and material to make identification badges. At a previous hearing in Dawson County Court, Gather Cole waived his right on an extradition request from Kansas, where he suspected of shooting at a Kansas trooper during a traffic stop and eluding him. The trooper was not injured. Gather Cole remains incarcerated at the Dawson County Jail in Lexington. A fatal crash occurred last night shortly before 10 p.m., about six miles east of Lexington from the Interstate 80 interchange in Dawson County. The driver of an eastbound pickup was pulling another pickup when the second pickup blew a tire. The first pickup entered the south ditch and rolled onto its top. The crash left a considerable amount of debris, but cleanup occurred without the need to close the eastbound lanes. One person was pronounced dead. He was identified as 52-year-old Derek Sweeney of Cedar Grove, Tennessee. The Lexington Volunteer Fire Department responded to the scene. Authorities say a man died after striking a parked car in eastern Nebraska. It occurred before 5 a.m. yesterday. The patrol says Donald Nicholson's vehicle struck the car in Brainerd, and he died later at a Butler County hospital. Get your news fast and first when you like our Facebook page. In the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Corn Congress wrapped up on Friday morning with their board of directors meeting, considered another successful event. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Chris Novak, who is CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, talked about the event and why it has importance to the corn producer. Travel across the country and obviously uh, there are... Uh, hundreds of thousands of farmers out there who aren't necessarily involved with the National Corn Growers Association or a similar farm association. And to the extent that I truly wish they had the opportunity to see uh, their fellow farmers uh, giving their time, giving their service, and crafting the policies of our organization. We are a grassroots organization, and so as we bring farmers to Washington, D.C., first and foremost, we're sitting down, talking to one another about what we expect uh, out of the 2018 Farm Bill. We're talking about the challenges that we have in marketing our products, uh, both domestically and internationally, and how we can ensure that we've got more profitable markets. This is grassroots democracy in action and grassroots democracy at its best. It's been encouraging to see uh, some stronger prices for the farmers uh, this summer. Uh, coming off of a record corn crop last year, a little surprising, but to the extent that as 
because I've talked to farmers from South Dakota and, and Northern Iowa who are suffering, uh, you know, the beginning beginning stages of drought. As I talk to farmers in Indiana and Ohio who are uh, a little too wet. And to the extent that this farm bill discussion that we did have and the emphasis and priority that our farmers have placed on crop insurance, they're willing to invest in an insurance program. But when you have natural disasters that span uh, the breadth of this country uh, or weather challenges that uh, span the breadth of this country, um, it's difficult to have a pure market-based insurance program. And that's where the government is important because we want farmers to be able, uh, if they suffer a bad crop, we want them to be able to stay on the land. We want them to be able to produce another crop next year. That's part of our food security. And to the extent that uh, moving into 2018, moving into a congressional debate about Farm Bill, there's lots of discussions about the need for additional budget cuts. We get that. Our, our farmers understand that you have to live, live within your means. But at the same time, we also know that uh, we certainly need to be involved in working with the government to ensure that, that when, when Mother Nature strikes, uh, we've got some way to be able to continue our operation. And what's your thoughts on the Mexican ambassador that was here talking about the importance of NAFTA? You know, we can talk about the farm bill and farm programs, and yet every farmer that I've always talked to has said, "I want my, I want, I want to earn, uh, you know, my income from the marketplace. I want to be able to sell my crop at a price that covers my cost of production and provides for my family." We do that uh, by turning the corn that we grow into something that's useful to customers. Uh, downstream from from the farm, we convert it into ethanol, and you know we hope that we can grow the ethanol market. We also convert it into livestock feed, uh, and certainly uh, this week a lot of discussions about the importance of our livestock partners. But at the same time, we also know that we need to access international markets that are critical to us. Mexico is the greatest example. Uh, our number one customer, uh, up uh, I think almost twenty eight hundred percent. The ambassadors said yesterday since uh, the start of NAFTA in 1994, uh, a success story of what free trade agreements can bring to agriculture. And to some extent, a lot of the talk in this town is that our trade policy is first to do no harm. And yet we uh, eliminated the opportunity to complete and finish a Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, at the start of this administration. That, that agreement would have been worth $4 billion in additional revenue to agriculture. We're renegotiating NAFTA, which has been a tremendous success story for American agriculture. We're hearing uh, rumors that uh, we may reopen the Korean free trade agreement, and Korea is another major market for us. We actually are going backwards on trade, and that's a message that I know the farmers, uh, as they went to Capitol Hill, as they talked to members of Congress, they did deliver that message loud and clear. Inc some encouraging news from China, certainly. Uh, a little bit of, of corn moving back in to China, uh, and certainly uh, the opening of the beef market, uh, that's the best way for us to sell corn to China if it's uh, being exported in a container full of, full of American uh, beef and pork. 
At the same time, we also have a lot of struggles with China. There was news this week that uh, they had approved a couple of new biotechnology traits, and yet uh, they also uh, denied moving forward with a couple of new technologies. Our farmers are facing new weed pressure. They're facing new insect pressure. We need technology to continue to evolve. And, and right now, one of our biggest stumbling blocks is the reluctance and, and what is a political process in China uh, that is keeping American farmers from accessing some of the innovative new tools that are, that are available to us in the market. My conversation with the National Corn Growers Association CEO Chris Novak at the wrap-up of Corn Congress that took place this last week in Washington, D.C. A lot of discussion was held on, obviously, crop insurance, trade, and the farm bill. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Next, let's talk with Joe Teal at Great Plains Commodities on our Closing livestock futures, which, of course, were limit down or sharply lower, Joe? Yeah, they sure were. The uh, cattle uh, really uh, took it on the chin today. Uh, uh, got a couple of uh, live cattle, uh, the October and December contracts limit down, um, and then the feeders, uh, the August contract. But the rest, uh, triple-digit losses. We did have a little bounce. We did have uh, multiple uh, contracts limit down. Just prior or at, prior to the close, and a quick little bounce uh, took them off the limit and uh, got them so they didn't uh, have that many settle limit down. But all this really coming from uh, the cattle on feed report and the cattle inventory report. The, uh, both reports uh, seen as uh, negative, and that uh, that warranted the reaction in the uh, futures today. No cash trade uh, to speak of. Cutouts at noon were just a little bit higher on very light volume. So that may have triggered the uh, bounce, but uh, uh, I think uh, the the, uh, coal storage report tonight will uh, have more of an influence and uh, if the uh, cutouts can stay higher. The hogs under some pressure there, too. Cash seemed to be uh, weaker. And uh, that puts some pressure on, despite the fact that they've got these huge discounts. So, uh, cattle, the, uh, and I think some influence from the cattle market uh, also putting uh, pressure on the hogs. But uh, the, uh, the discount is uh, so great uh, that I don't know that it can last a whole lot longer. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. The work of preventing and eradicating diseases in the animals we use for our food supply is a never-ending project. The largest animal disease center in the country is located in Ames, Iowa. Dr. Mark Curley is the director of the center, and I asked him about the facility. Well, the National Animal Disease Center is part of the Agricultural Research Service Agency of the USDA, and our focus is to do basic research that's mission-oriented towards solving endemic diseases that are uh, ravaging our livestock producers and the, the poultry producers so that we can come up with either new vaccines that are better than what's available or create a vaccine for one where one is not currently available or other novel uh, ways to intervene uh, that don't necessarily involve vaccines. What type of animals are you working with at the center? 
Well, we work with just about everything that you might eat uh, in, in, in purchase at the uh, local supermarket. So obviously cattle, uh, swine, uh, some work with sheep. Uh, we also do a, a lot of research with some poultry issues, uh, focusing primarily at our center on food safety concerns uh, with the poultry. What about wild type animals, uh, deer for example? I know you've got some out there. Yeah, uh, our wildlife uh, species often represent a reservoir of pathogens that we've already eradicated from our livestock species. And uh, a couple of examples, we do research with uh, bison, uh, various species of deer and elk, uh, where we're trying to better control diseases like brucellosis uh, that are endemic in some of those wildlife species. We've eradicated them from the majority of our uh, livestock species. They're also uh, brucella is also still present in uh, feral swine populations. So they, they present a risk to our commercial producers of livestock, and we're trying to come up with vaccines or ways to eradicate uh, those formerly endemic diseases in the United States from our wildlife species. And uh, the other example with the white-tailed deer and other deer species uh, is with tuberculosis, where uh, TB can um, persist in wildlife populations and, and present a risk to uh, livestock producers in those regions. What about environmental concerns, environmental safety of the public from this facility? We do a, a lot of uh, processes, if you will, at our facility to ensure that uh, the environment here in Ames, I live in Ames, I drink the water from Ames, uh, my grandchildren live in Ames and they drink the water from Ames, so we do everything we possibly can. In fact, there are probably very few facilities in the world that have the capabilities of inactivating our waste streams like we do. Uh, we autoclave, in essence, uh, about 90,000 gallons of liquid waste out of our uh, biocontainment facilities every single day. Uh, that's a hot water bill you do not want to get at your home. <laughs> Well, we get our funding primarily from Congress. Uh, we, that is our core mission, and um, all of our funding that we get from Congress is mission-oriented for a very specific purpose, typically uh, focused on a particular commodity group uh, to address an issue they may have. Very, very important work, and I'm sure it's a never-ending process. There's no shortage of diseases for us to be working on. Uh, we have, over the last uh, 31 years, more than one disease uh, emerge somewhere on the planet that impacts livestock or poultry production in, in this country and uh, that is in our capacity to respond should something get inside our borders or simply uh, new strains that emerge uh, that uh, maybe our older vaccines no longer protect against. So there's no shortage of work uh, although we'd like to work ourselves out of a job uh, it's not likely to happen in my lifetime. A center tour was part of the Animal Health of the Heartland Symposium, a production of Iowa Bio and Bio Nebraska. I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. We close lower in the grains trade today. And with us, John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. We had some big-time losses, but uh, we came off those lows. What was the positive sign that we saw that buying back into the market? The close, really the last hour of the trade, I think it was very impressive. We saw beans come back. We didn't cover the gaps yet, which I think will happen tonight, um, if not you know, tomorrow or later. I, it'll, it'll be sometime soon, I imagine. But just all in all, I think the, the way we handled the sell-off, you know, I mean, we've been back here 15 times, do we, in the last two weeks, three weeks, 390 December. You know, it's going to trade around these levels until we get some sort of idea on yield. We have not even kicked around numbers yet. So the numbers, I think, you know, 
depending on where you are, I'll tell you what you should do. If you think it's closer to 160 nationwide yields, I think you should be buying this number. If you think it's going to be 165 or higher, I think you want to be patient. And by that meaning, I think I've mentioned this before, really the time to buy is after the 31st of August winter due, and that's when a lot of this old crop has to get cleaned up. You can see the difference between corn in September delivery and the corn in September delivery. That's a 15 cents wide, 15 cents which tells you that nobody really wants to buy corn now because they know they got to store it and, and pile on that new crop. So uh, if you have to move it, I think reowning it makes sense. If you, if you want to buy it, I think waiting to buy makes sense. What about soybeans in marketing soybeans at this present time? Well, I stand by kind of what I think here. 1030 seems to be a good spot to do it. I still feel that there's going to be some heat on those hedgers at that point. We haven't had it yet. Um, but the, the price action today, I think, is, is very good. You look at the, the down move overnight and be dis- disappointed. But I look and just go back to last Tuesday. We're trading in the in the high to you know 990 level. So we're we're up almost 20 cents from that point over a week. And you know a lot of crops still to go. The areas that got rain over the weekend and these parts had a lot of rain. You know, I have producers in the northern part of the state of Illinois that had to get evacuated just due to the amount of rainfall we got and a lot of creeks overflowing their their banks. And uh, you know we're to the point now where we wouldn't mind shutting it off for a while. Uh, temperatures are going to drop this way, which I think also has the market on the defensive. But uh, out where you guys are, and really more north of you, I don't think anything has changed. And uh, I think we're going to continue to find about struggles that are in that crop. And uh, I think right now the northwestern part of the state of Iowa is really where uh, the make or break is going to happen. So if you believe those rains helped, this is probably a sell. If you think they, ha- they hurt or they didn't get it, I don't think you've seen the last of the highs. Thanks, John. John Payne. Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. He's also the publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. Go to DanielsAgMarketing.com and get more information. Corn did finish two and a half to two and three quarters lower, 11 to four in soybeans today.